0: During the Depression, a man named Yates owned a sheep ranch in West Texas. Because he did not earn enough money to make his ranching operation pay, Mr. Yates was in danger of losing his ranch. His family, like many others, had to live on government subsidy. Day after day, as Mr. Yates grazed his sheep over those rolling hills of West Texas, he was greatly troubled over how to meet his financial obligations. Then a seismographic crew from an oil company came into the area and informed Mr. Yates that they felt there might be oil on his land. They asked permission to drill a wildcat test well, and he signed a lease contract. At 1,115 feet, they struck a huge oil reserve. The first well came in at 80,000 barrels a day. Many subsequent wells were more than twice as large, and Mr. Yates owned it all. The day he purchased the land, he received the oil and mineral rights. Yet he had been living on relief, a multimillionaire living in poverty. The problem? He did not know the oil was there. He owned it, but he did not possess it. I do not know of a better illustration of the Christian life than this. The moment we become children of God through faith in Christ, we become heirs of God and all of his divine supernatural resources are made available to us. Everything we need, including wisdom, love, power, to be the men and women of God, and to be fruitful witnesses for Christ, those things are available to us. But most Christians continue to live in self-imposed spiritual poverty because they do not know how to appropriate from God those spiritual resources which are already theirs.
1: All right, today's passage comes from the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves but those who by nature, to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone becomes because I am perplexed about you.
0: Morning, everybody. Hey, uh, any good Catholics? Anybody raised Catholic in here? Any good Catholics? Peace be with you. (laughs) And also with you. Yes, thank you. Thanks. Peace be with you. And may God be gracious to you. May he bless you. And may his face shine upon you this morning. It's good to be together. Father, thank you for our time. And uh, thank you for your word and your son. And the joy it is to celebrate you, the one who took the initiative, when we were in slavery, to break the bonds, to free us and redeem us so that we might live in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I've got, how long do I have? I have five minutes? (laughs) About 10 after? All right. You know, I really loathe this nine o'clock service. I, I don't know how you people wake up this early. Tomorrow morning they'll ask me which service do you want uh, on the internet, and I'll say put the first one. I was sleeping, so uh, I need a volunteer, somebody willing to uh, come up front. Good, this looks well. Okay, um, I actually need a man volunteer. Randy, come on up front, okay? I need a man volunteer, and I need some, uh, I need some young, younglings. Let's see. Uh, can I grab you? Can I, do you mind coming up front and being a youngling for me? Okay, let's see. Can I grab you to be a youngling this morning? Is that all right? Okay. Okay, Randy, I need you up on... Okay, Randy's going to play a, a, a character. His name is Mr. Yates, okay? And Mr. Yates was a, a rancher in the uh, Depression, and uh, basically his whole ranch was devastated. The uh, The land was drying up, and he was saying, Wow, this is really bad. Okay. He was saying, Wow, this is really bad. And his children were by his side. Younglings were by his side. That would be you guys. You would be by his side. Can... Okay, right, right there. That will be good. Okay. His younglings were by his side and, and they, were, they were crying about their situation. The situation that the farm was dry and there was no rain and there was no more food and life looked miserable. They were crying. (laughs) And there were bills to pay, weren't there? You got bills to pay when you're on the ranch, don't you? Okay, so I need a... I need a... Yes, Mr. (laughs) Yes. Okay, I need the law to come in because... But I need the law to go and stand over Mr. Yates, telling him how many bills he has to uh, owe. Okay? He's got a lot of bills to pay. And I need a young college student. Tell him how many bills he has to pay. Okay, 10. Okay, he's got 10 bills. All right. I need a young college student. Okay. See, Mr. Yates is in misery and despair because he's living on this ranch and. He's got children that are wa- crying. Wow, this is really bad. And he's saying, "Wow, this is really bad." Except, a young college student with an, with an engineering degree from an oil company comes to him and says, "I want to survey your land." And and what else? Yeah, I think really good oil there. Okay, so he goes and he runs around the the building to survey the land. <laughs> go ahead and you know go ahead and go over it that way. You're a young <laughs> you're a young guy, okay? And Mr. Yates is throwing his hands up saying, I don't know what to do.
1: Wow, this is
0: really good. Yeah. And the law is standing over him telling him how many bills he has to pay. You have to pay. Keep saying you have to pay. pay, pay. Get on his case a little more. Where's that college student? All right, hurry up, college student. So the college student gets back and he says, Wow, how is he gonna be a rich man? I think <laughs> you might have won the lottery, you know, I think the reality is Mr. Yates lived on a farm and a ranch in Texas. And when the, uh, the engineers came, they said, we want to look at your land to see if there's oil underneath there. They found billions of gallons of oil, a man who lived in poverty yet was filthy rich and was taken care of, though he didn't even know it. All right, thank you guys. Thanks for participating in our little story here. Thank you, younglings. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, you know, that's the reality sometimes is that uh, sometimes we don't realize the situation we're in. Sometimes we don't realize uh, what's under our very feet. And uh, that's kind of the story here in our passage. I kind of got my notes a little messed up. But that's all right. We've been talking about how does someone enter into the kingdom of God? How does somebody live in the kingdom of God? How do you maintain your status in the kingdom of God? And Paul has been arguing with these Galatians that, uh, that they are foolish. They are stupid to be listening to other people that are telling them that the gospel is Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus follow these rules. It's Jesus plus do these things. And Paul says, no, it's not. No, it's not. And he gives them an example. And this uh, turn to your Bibles in uh, chapter four, verse one. And he says, now what I'm saying, or now I say, I'm going to give you an example of what God did and how to obtain this promise. That as long as the heir is in the minority, he does not differ one bit from a slave, even though he owns everything. You see, if, if you're a child and you're given an inheritance in this time, uh, you would not be allowed to control your circumstances, even though you owned all the things around you. You're no different than a slave that is told, do this, do that, go here, go there. Verse 2, but that minority is under guardians and stewards. And Jackson uh, referred to this last week. It's like a tutor, somebody to stand by your side and continually tell you, uh, you need to move over here, or no, you need to move over there. Or, You're doing that wrong, and, and stop acting that way, and, and get it right this time. You have a, somebody around you all the time telling you what's right and wrong. But the minority is under a guardian or a steward until the time previously fixed by the father. See, when you were given an inheritance at this time, what would happen is that the father would say, okay, I want somebody to rule over, watch over, guard over the child until a set date. And once that set date comes, the child is free from the guardianship and the stewardship. He is free to start making decisions on his own, to do what he wants to do. He's no longer under the law. What's interesting is, the, is that it's the father that gets to pick that date. It's not the minority. It's not the child. And Paul goes on to say, In like manner, we also, when we were in our minority, we were, a permanent, we were in a permanent state of servitude under the rudimentary first principles of mankind. Now, here's what he could mean. He could mean when he says, and we, meaning Jews, we Jews, when we were in the state of being under the law, being told by God how to do stuff, how not to do stuff, how to love our neighbor, how not to love our neighbor, we were in the same position. We had no freedom. We were in a permanent state of servitude to the rudimentary principles that god laid down he says well, you know if you if your neighbor needs help go and help them do this act like this around your people and we have the whole old testament levitical law that tells us the different things that the jews were required to observe and it's interesting that paul says uh, in scripture that if you fail to observe one of those rules you've broken all of those rules and that seems pretty dismal doesn't it to be under slavery like that. Can you imagine what it would be like if you had somebody around you all the time saying, no, do this, no, do that. Guys, stop thinking of your wives, okay? No, do this, no, do that. Take it this way, take it that way. It's somebody like micromanaging you the whole time. It gets annoying, doesn't it? Like, get off my case. Leave me alone. But the reality is that That's what the law is. It continually tells us what's right and wrong and tells us what to do. Verse 4, but. And I love when, you know, actually the word is Allah, A-L-L-A in the Greek. And when I was taking Greek, I always used to remind myself that Allah is a big but. So, it's a big but. You know, we used to live in this way, but... Something has changed. Something has come. There's a different way of looking at things. Verse 4, But when the time, but when there came the fullness of time. Basically the idea is that when God decided that it was time. God sent off his son. Born of a woman. Subject to the law. And I love this idea. I'm not sure if you really get it in in the English But uh, this this idea that God sends his son, the picture is that God is standing by his side, and he looks to him and says, it's time. I want you to go. And I want you to be born of a woman, and I want you to be born under the law. I want you to enter into the circumstances that the people are already in, because you're going to be required to live by the law yourself. In order, verse 5, in order, why did God do this? Why did God give us the law for so many years, years and years and years, and then finally said, okay, I'm going to send my son? Paul says, well, it was in order that he might deliver those under the law. He wanted to deliver them. He wanted to say, hey, you don't need to live under the law anymore. I want to take you out of that situation. So there's one in order, in order to deliver us. The second in order is that in order that we might receive the placement of adult sons. Why did God send Jesus Christ at that time? So that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, would be placed no longer as children under the law, but He would take us, pull us out of that situation, and make us adult Sons, That was the appointed time. God says, this is it. I'm sending my son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that to deliver you and to bring you to a state of being an adult son, no longer a child. And because you are sons, because you are no longer these little children, no longer these little slaves, and you're now adult children, verse 6, because you are God's sons... God sent forth, again, this is the same idea as before when it said God sent his son, God sent forth his spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, dad, daddy. No longer are you going to somebody saying, am I doing what is right? Am I doing what is wrong? But you're going to somebody that you go to and you say, hey, dad. And it's this idea, this intimate relationship. When I was in Campus Crusade uh, for Christ, I would go to talk to people and I would say things like, Would you like to have an intimate relationship with Christ or Jesus or God? And I felt that kind of awkward at times, but as I read this passage, this is the idea behind it is that would you like to enter into an intimate, loving, caring relationship with the God of the universe? Daddy. Unfortunately, most or some of us. Don't have good examples of dads. And that can't be changed. But we do have God as our Heavenly Father, as our Dad, no longer over us saying, you better do this, you better do that, you better get your act together, you better get it straight. But he says, I'm your dad. I tell you, the the most exciting thing for me uh, is being a dad right now. Loving my kids. I love to go in and watch my kids while they're sleeping. Any parents who used to, used to do that? When your little, your little ones are sleeping, you go in and you go, know, Oh, man, that is so beautiful. And that's that intimate relationship, that watching over us. And the interesting thing is that God sent his son, not because we cried out and said, God, please do something. God sent his spirit, not because we said, You know, we really need to figure out another way. God sent his son in his spirit because he he was the one that took the initiative to say the law will never free you, and you'll never get it right without my help. So, verse 7, you are no longer, so that no longer are you a slave. Why did God do all this? So that you're no longer a slave but a son. And since you are a son, you are also an heir through God, by God, because of God, what he did, you have now become an heir. An heir of what? An heir of the promise of Abraham. The very thing that every Jew wanted to obtain, the promise of being in Abraham's heritage, his line, the blessing, the continual presence of the living God. It's not because of anything you did. It's all because of what God did by sending His Son at the right time, at the right moment, to the right place, born under the woman, born under the law, so that you're no longer a slave but a son and an heir. And that's pretty much the simple gospel. That's it. Enter into a loving relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit. It's your choice. He's calling you. And what happens, though? Don't we get things kind of screwed up sometimes after we become Christians? Or if you've ever, done, uh, if you've ever out, gone out and sh- shared your faith and people have come to know Jesus and then other people come in behind you and say, well, they haven't given you the full information about the gospel. Anybody ever experienced that? You've, you've shared your faith with people around you and they've come to know Jesus and then somebody else comes in and says, you know what, he didn't tell you the truth pretty disappointing because you labor and you put forth a lot of effort and then somebody comes in and changes things well this is what paul's getting at verse eight but at that time in fact you didn't know god and you were slaves in bondage to the gods which were not gods by nature see before god moved these gentiles were enslaved in bondage to the gods that were really not gods at all But now having come to know God, in verse 9, indeed rather having become known by God, I really like how Paul puts it. He starts off by saying, now that you've come to know God, you know, really that's not the truth. The idea is that you've become known by God. It's really all about God. How is it possible that you're turning back again to the weak and beggarly and rudimentary principles to which you were bent on again being in bondage? Okay, it's kind of like uh, Bart up here, kind of standing over Mr. Yates. You owe, you owe, you owe. And he gets all this money. He gets all this money from all the oil. And the law is still standing there saying, you owe, you owe, you owe. And Mr. Yates is crowding under there going, I know, I know, I know. That's what happens sometimes. We come to know God, or actually God comes to know us. We enter into this personal relationship with him, but somehow we turn back to the weak. I like how Paul puts this. The weak and beggarly rudimentary principles. You turn back to them. And not only do you turn back to them, but you're bent on turning back to them. You're bent on going back to the way you used to live. It's kind of like somebody says, you know, this this Jesus thing isn't really working for me. Ever hear that? I'm not sure this Jesus thing really works. You know, I became a believer and, and I've tried. I've, I've really tried to, to do all the right things, but it's just not working out. So I'm going to turn back. And Paul goes on to explain, how are they doing that? Well, there's days you are scrupulously and religiously observing. There's months that you're observing. There's seasons that you're observing and there's years that you're observing. And I'm afraid... About you, least perhaps in vain that I've labored to the point of exhaustion for you. The Galatians were under the rule of these gods, probably Greek and Roman gods, prior to coming to know Christ. They came to know Christ, and the Judaizers came in and said, Well, the reality is that you need to be circumcised and you need to start observing certain days, certain months, certain seasons, certain years. Paul says you've exchanged one set of bondage for another set of bondage. Man, I really wish I could think of some Christian religious days that we celebrate. Oh, well. Did you ever say this to your kids? I mean, I remember hearing this growing up. It's Easter. Okay. So does that mean I'm supposed to be different on Easter? It's Christmas. Be thankful. Oh, okay. I'll change my attitude today. You know, even as Christians, we pick days, we pick seasons, and and we go, you know, you better, you better get your act together those days. When in reality is, you know, if the Spirit of God is asking you to observe those days, that's great. But if He's not, then don't put it down as a law. You know, I like Easter. I don't like ham. You know, growing up, we used to, my dad would get these ducks on Easter, and he'd put them in the backyard, and so we'd wake up in the morning, and there'd be like three or four ducks in there, and Easter's always on a Sunday, a good day to have a a holiday so that we could play in the backyard with the ducks, and then we would go to school the next day, and when we got home, the ducks were gone. You know, Easter is a, a wonderful day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, but never use it as a law come down on somebody you know you should go to church it's Easter you know it's interesting that Christmas and Easter are probably the biggest days in this church of the attendance I mean we get tons of people showing up because the world thinks that's what you do the world has this skewed idea of what is it really like to be a Christian well you observe things there's a, uh, a book by Dan Brown uh, called Angels and Demons, and there's a movie that's going to be coming out here shortly. And As I was reading it, I, I caught a glimpse of what maybe he might believe about Christianity, and I think it kind of catches what the world thinks. And there's this woman with him named Veretta. Oh, I'm sorry, Victoria. Victoria was watching him and said, Do you believe in God, Mr. Langdon? The question startled him. The earnestness in and Vittoria's voice was even more disarming than the inquiry. Do I believe in God? He had hoped for a lighter topic of conversation to pass the time. A spiritual con- conundrum, Langdon thought. That's what my friends call me. Although he studied religion for years, Langdon was not a religious man. He respected the power of faith, the benevolence of churches, and the strength religion gave so many people, And yet for him, the intellectual suspension of disbelief that was imperative if one were truly going to believe had always proved too big an obstacle for his academic mind. He heard himself say, I want to believe. Vittorio reply carried no judgment or challenge, so why don't you believe? He chuckled, well, it's not that easy. Having faith requires leaps of faith. Cerebral acceptance of miracles, immaculate conceptions, and divine interventions. And then there's the codes of conduct. The Bible, the Koran, the Buddhist scripture, they all carry similar requirements and similar penalties. They claim that if you don't live by a specific code, I will go to hell. I can't imagine a God who would rule that way. I can't either. Because he doesn't. He doesn't rule that way. That's the amazing thing about Christianity. God does not rule by code. He rules by grace. We don't need to observe all these special days, seasons, and years to make sure that God's happy with us. Paul says you've turned from Gentile gods and you're turning to Jewish gods, and I'm afraid that I've labored with you in vain. I've put so much effort into working with you that you've now turned to something other than what I told you. So what do you do? What do you do if you find yourself in the situation that, okay, I I do, I, I, I like law, I like controlling things, I like people telling me how to live because I can calculate it and I can make sure I'm doing the right thing at the right time and I feel good when I accomplish things like that. It does, it feels good. If we sit there and say, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, I felt like I've accomplished something. Well, Paul says in verse 12, he says, become as I am. Because I also became as you were. Become as I am because I also became as you were. Here's the idea. Paul was a Jew. He kept all the Jewish codes meticulously. He says, I was a a, a Pharisee among Pharisees. I did all the right things. And what did I become? I became a grace." loving follower of jesus christ i gave away all those things those things are but rubbish and worthless to me and count them but loss i count everything dear to me being jesus christ that's what i've become and that's what you became when i came to you you became followers of christ you relinquished and turned away from all the laws and the gods that you thought were powerful and you turned to christ Brothers, I'm beseeching you, stop. Basically, he says, stop following the law. It won't get you anywhere. You had done me no wrong. Become as I am because I also became as you were, were, brothers. I'm beseeching you. You had done me no wrong. You didn't harm me, verse 13, but you know that because of an infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel to you on the occasion of my first visit. You see, Paul didn't plan on going to the Galatians. But he got sick. He had no intention of visiting him. Now, we don't really know what his sickness was. It could have been malaria. Uh, some people think it's some sort of uh, eye problem. Like he got. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for when you get older and they become cloudy? Cataracts, thank you. Something like cataracts in his eyes. Uh, I went online to look at some of the pictures of uh, this word that is used to describe what Paul's ailment was, and basically the eyes become really puffy, and they look like... Uh, you ever cook fish and the eyes become white? That's what it looked like. But you know, you know you're not my enemy. You know, you know that I came to you and preached the gospel to you on my first visit because I, there was an infirmity in the flesh. Verse 14, In the temptation to which you were subjected and which was in my flesh, you did not loathe nor utterly despise, but you accepted me and received me as a messenger of God, as Jesus Christ Himself. You see, the state that Paul was in when he showed up to these people was one of, oh my gosh, who is that? He looks horrid. The idea is that they're about to throw up. Boy, looking at that makes me sick. But they didn't say, get out of here. They said, come. Tell us what you know. Growing up with a dentist as a father, uh, my, as we went on vacations, my dad was into slides. This was probably in the uh, 60s and 70s. Anybody, was, anybody big into taking slides when your kids were growing up? So we would go on our vacation and we'd get home and we'd be so excited because you know, as opposed to the digital age, we'd have to wait, I think, what, three or four weeks before the slides got back. And... We'd be, we'd be sitting down ready to watch the slides and we'd be, he'd be clicking through them. We're like, oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember that. But the interesting thing is that my dad loved to take slides of people's teeth as well as the, at the office. And these teeth were not necessarily pretty. So you'd be going through the slides. Oh, I remember we were climbing that. Oh, I remember we were going that. And this big old ugly mouth without any teeth. <laughs> oh! Yeah. And that's the idea of what Paul looked like that's nasty. But the Galatians didn't give into the temptation. They were tempted to say, get away from us. They didn't give into it. They said, you know what? We're going to receive you. And not only that, but they received him with joy. They received him with excitement. And Paul goes on to say, where is therefore your spiritual prosperous state? For I bear witness that to you that if I, I, it had been possible, you would have dug out your own eyes and you would have given them to me so that I had become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth. Guys, when I came to you, I looked like garbage and you received me with joy. You were excited about everything I had to say. You were tempted to kick me out, but you, were ki- you let me stay and you were growing. Not only were you growing, and this is where they think they, maybe he had an eye infection, Not only were you growing, but each one of you would have dug your own eyes out and given them to me. Or you would have fought until your eyes were dug out for me. You would have given up your very lives for me. But now I've become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth that you live under the law? The way you treat me? You see, in verse 17, Paul goes on to say these people, these Judaizers. Oh, wait a minute. I want to go back for a second. Do you ever find yourself when you see somebody teaching, leading, and you judge them on how they look? Do you ever find yourself doing that? I got my shirt untucked. I don't have a tie on. I once had a parent say to a kid uh, that they couldn't wear jeans to church because they needed to look their best for God. Jeans are bad. God doesn't like jeans. I think one of the things that we're tempted to do is when we look at people and judge them about, well, does this person really have the authority or something good to say to me based on how they look, especially in our image-driven age? And I think that's something we need to repent of. I do. I get a theological book and I turn to the back to see what the guy looks like that wrote it. Oh, man, I'm glad I didn't have his class. <laughs> we do that, don't we? We debate if we're going to listen to somebody based on how they look. Paul didn't look too good, but God used him. Or maybe we say, you know what, I don't have it all together. Maybe I don't have the look, I don't have the words, I don't have the way to to really tell people about Jesus. Really? Why don't you put a couple sticks in your eyes and go around, see what people do. The reality is it doesn't matter what we look like. We're not trying to get people to accept our image. We're trying to get people to enter into the kingdom of God. Paul says, I'm not, you know, I was sick. I looked horrible, yet I still was called to tell you about the king of kings. Paul goes on He says, there's these people, these Judaizers, and they're zealously paying you court. They're trying to court you, but they don't do it honestly. These Judaizers desire to isolate you. And they want you to pay tribute to them. You know, it's not a bad thing to have somebody come after you. I think all of us like when people pursue us. And Paul says it's not a bad thing. It's actually pretty good to be zealously courted in a good thing at all times as long as it's good. And not only when I am present with you, but my children, concerning whom I am again striving with intense effort and anguish until Christ be outwardly expressed in you. I wish... I were present with you at this time and I could change my tone because I am perplexed about you. My little children, my goal for you is not that you would follow a law. My goal for you is that Christ would be formed in you. What is the goal of Christianity? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It doesn't mean showing up every Sunday to a building. It means having Jesus transform our lives changing us from the horrible people that we are into his image i had a friend that wrote wrote a note the other day and was just talking about when people criticize people we start pointing out other people's wrongs you're wrong there you're wrong there look how bad you are and he said you know what there's there's much that is wrong with us If our critics knew only a fraction of what God knows about us, they'd be even more dismayed. Christianity and and following Jesus is not a matter of following a code, following law, and following rules. It's about being changed from the inside out so that Christ is expressed to the world around us. That doesn't mean that we don't live righteously. It just means that we don't evaluate our relationship with god according to whether we're doing it right or wrong i was on an airplane uh, a couple weeks ago and uh, there's a guy next to me and we were we had been talking about life and uh, colin my son was in the seat in front of us and you know don't you just love little children how blunt they are they colin just turns around and says do you go to church <laughs> great thanks appreciate that But I always try to figure out, okay, Lord, do you want me to talk to this person more about you? And what is it that you want me to talk about? And this guy kept saying, you know, I really like Christian morals. I really like Christian morals. And I sat next to him going, boy, I really wish I could figure something out to say to this guy. My mind was just blank. And I got off the plane and I thought, boy, I'm stupid. Why didn't I catch that? He was talking about Christian morals and Christians don't have morals. We don't have morals. We have a God who's given us His Spirit to direct us and empower us to live righteously in this world. I wish I could go back to that guy and say, you know what, could you tell me about those morals because I don't know about them. And I'd like to tell you about a God who wants to give you His Spirit so that you could live freely in this world and express what it means to follow Christ. But I didn't get that chance. You know, the thing is, is it really, this section is... How do you evaluate your life? What does it mean to be a Christian? You know, some of you have, have lived under these laws that you're placing upon yourself. And I want to encourage you to, to let that weight off your shoulders. You don't need to live under the law. And we're going to be talking about what does it mean to live under the Spirit over the next couple weeks. Some of you judge people according to your own law and they don't measure up. Stop it. Stop judging people according to your law. You know, these Galatians that Paul loved and cared for, they're, being, they're turning to, to law. They're being subjected to rules. They're making mistakes. And Paul doesn't say, okay, get out of here. He says, no, I'm going to labor as like a woman giving birth to a child until Christ is formed in you. I'm going to work at it. What is that for you? I don't know. You have to ask the Spirit. Where is he calling you to preach the gospel? I don't know. You have to ask the Spirit. But we don't do it according to rules. We do it according to the Spirit. There was a movie a couple years ago. I think it was in the 90s, Les Miserables. I didn't read the book. It's a little bit too thick for me. They had like an abridged version, about 150 pages. I'd probably read it. But I love the story because it's about a man who was hungry just needed some food, and he stole some bread. He was caught and put into prison and paid paid his time. His name was Jean Valjean. There was another guy in the movie, Javert. Is that the police officer? Javert watched over him while he was in prison. And Jean Valjean got out of prison. He was released, but he had to go report... To a station, and on his way there, he ended up sleeping at a priest's house. And while he was sleeping, he was having dreams of this past life that he had. And he finally decided, I don't know how to live in the future. I'd rather go back. So what does he do? He steals all the silverware and leaves. He gets caught, and they're brought back to the priest's house, and they say, This man said that you gave him the silverware. He said, I did. But you forgot the candlesticks. They're of much more value. Take the candlesticks. And he looks at him and he says, Jean Valjean, with this I have bought back your life. I've redeemed you. And the amazing thing about this story is that it goes on to play out how Jean Valjean lives from this experience of grace and how he wants to care for people and how he continually gives and watches over and loves people. Yet at the same time, Javert is still in the picture. And years later, Javert finds out that, he is, that Jean Valjean is a mayor of a city. And, Jean, and uh, Javert is intent on loving people by keeping the law. As long as we keep the law, the people are protected and taken care of. And that's what he's dedicated his life to. I will keep the law. And the rest of the story is how the, this intertwining relationship works out. And you realize living by the law is not how to live. It only enslaves you. And at the very end, Jean Valjean and Javert are at the river's edge and Jean Valjean is in chains. He's going to be taken away. And Javert goes over and he unlocks the chains. The reality is that he's always been free even though he was chained up there. And Javert Javert basically says, You've lived the life that I've wanted to live but never could. I tried to live by the law and it didn't produce what I wanted it to do. But somehow you live by grace and it changes everything. Father, thank you so much that at the right time you chose to send your son from your side to redeem us, to adopt us, to bring us into your family and to give us your spirit so that we can say, Dad, Help us, Lord, to follow your Spirit. And over the next couple weeks, teach us what it means to live by the Spirit and not according to the flesh. What a joy it is to live day by day without the law, but with your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.